I'm going to blow your mind here. Uh-huh. As my mind was itself blown by the dictionary okay. uh, in like high school. <clears throat> when I looked at the definition of garnish. Was it originally something to do with meat? Garnish, as you, I'm sure, will immediately recognize now that I say it, is rather close, is it not, to karna. Mm. It comes from, you know, a little bit of meat. And the garnish was the little bit of meat in your plate of, you know, plant-based food for, like, the vast majority of human civilization. Um, That's how people ate, Um, with the exception... And not, I mean, I'm sure not even that much the exception of, of pastoral nomads, because even they um, would have had a lot of non-meat items, you know, whether it be dairy or um, other kinds of plants. Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast for two straight white guys who went to Yale, solve America's cultural divisions by talking about cuisine. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Charles Bovinger, with me on the line, as always, from Istanbul, Turkey, my co-host, David Wheel. David, how's it going? Doing well, Charles. I, uh, we, we had quite the discussion about cuisine, which, as my belly is now full, I um, am both more and less interested in, now that I've you know, scratched that uh, itch, satisfied that need for sustenance. We can, we can move on from cuisine to more... Um, refined things well you can so for those listeners out there we record this at 10 a.m eastern time and it's about 5 p.m uh, where david is so david has often just eaten and i often am about to eat as soon as we finish the show so uh there are there are consequences to being in different time zones uh, i don't know if... the, the yin and yang of oh, appetite yes. and satiety oh yeah there's there's mm-hmm. no escape uh, but I've had some cheese and crackers as we were getting ready to start this show. Sharp cheddar cheese slices and uh, some toasted sesame crackers. So I am just all ready to go. Um, and uh, yeah, this week we're gonna we've got, we've had a bit of uh, well, it's not like there are slow news weeks in the Trump administration. <laughs> so uh, let's just dive right into it. Um, we're recording this as the first show we've done since the. Helsinki summit, uh, as some were calling it, the surrender summit, where even just looking at the pictures, Trump looks like he's contorting his body to look small next to Putin. It was it's hard to tell how much people um, select for the pictures that have that effect and whether you could find whether you could make it look like that um, with anybody. But yeah, no, I'm going to have to uh, right off the bat here. You know, I disagree with you. Well, because one of the things that I um, was perpetually and still remain stunned by is the way that conservative media uh, consistently found pictures of Obama that made him look like an idiot. <laughs> you know, they and, and that's the point is that the the photographers take so many pictures they do. that um, people select them based on, you know, editors of various media outlets, select them based on the impression they want to give to their readers. And uh, I have no doubt that, um, you know, uh, the Daily Caller or whatever has found pictures that make Putin look um, like an adoring lapdog, you know, staring up to Trump, uh, who, you know, standing with back straight, gazing off into the distance like a like a visionary. Um, so that's not, you know, I, I don't think we can rely on that data point and we don't need to because we have the words that came out of their mouths. <laughs> well, he, he's claiming those weren't really the words that came out of his mouth anyway. They were actually different right. words. He actually right. said wouldn't instead of would, but you heard it has nothing to do with reality. Right. And even, well, if, just, you, even if you allow yeah. him that one adjustment, not only does it result in a really weird sentence, although knowing him, that doesn't really mean anything. Um, but all the other words that he said, like, it wasn't just that sentence. Right. That's the, that's the underlying point. I mean, the, the, yeah, this, this, it gets you into a weird place because his, um, there's this whole concept of taking him seriously, but not literally and what that can mean in any context. But, um, 
he, you know, it was pretty clear from everything that he said that he was painting a picture of um, a relationship between the two countries, America and Russia, uh, where no real problems existed and that everything could be solved by the, like, by the obvious friendship between these two men. You know, that's the world that every word that came out of Donald Trump's mouth um, suggested either existed or should exist. And him, you know, adding that contracted negative uh, after, you know, a day after the fact uh, was so manifestly insufficient to change that the full weight of everything else that he said that, um, you know, that it just highlights the situation we're in where um, <clears throat> his supporters, his base in the Republican Party and um, the politicians who slavishly serve as his conduit to those Republican uh, voters <clears throat> um, are just primed to respond to the to the subtlest hint from Trump of like, oh, this is the direction we're going today. Oh, this is the direction we're going to go now, you know, that um, that's what the signal is for. You know, the signal is not for people who are thinking clearly because nobody is stupid. Nobody who's actually critically interacting with what he says is stupid enough to, to believe it. Uh, but it's for the people who don't even ask the question of, you know, do I believe this or not? That reminds me of something that I had uh, read once about spam emails, where they often have so many typos in them. And, mm -hmm. and I had heard that part of the explanation for that is that um, anybody who would notice typos and care isn't the kind of person who'd fall for the scam <laughs> anyway. And so it sort of <laughs> helps weed through to the people who are going to fall for it. Now, I don't know that that's entirely true, as I can certainly think of a lot of um, less computer-savvy elderly people I know who would catch typos, but who would not understand which emails to be afraid of. Now, yeah. But that said, the general well, that's, that's idea... Actually, yeah. No, but that's a, that's a good, I think it's actually a good reference because it gets to the question of, like, is Trump a, um, a, a wizard? You know, is he a mastermind? Uh, psycho warlock who is, you know, bewitching the American people according to some intricate, you know, plan. It's like, no, he's not. He's just someone who has a niche and he's a, he's a performer and a bullshitter and someone who, as a result of his inherited wealth and um, accumulated privileges of generation and sex and everything else is just used to being able to bullshit and bulldoze and get his way. Um, and that works. And you know, you know, you don't need to ascribe some kind of uh, devious genius to it because it just, you know, you can explain the phenomenon without, these unprovable hypotheses. Right. And part of the problem that he's running, which is to say, you know, in regards to the spam, you know, the like spam that have those typos, it's not like they're intentionally putting in the typos. You don't have to suggest that they're intentionally putting in the typos. It's just that if there's no selective, you know, uh, penalty for spam that has typos versus spam that has no typos, then the spam with the typos is is also going to get the mark, you know. If there's no if there's no discernment among the that population of marks, then you'll still have spam with typos, and it's not. You don't have to suggest that they're like intentionally thrown in there to weed out other people who, right? Yeah, not going to fall for it. Uh, but in Trump's case, the problem he's run into is when you're a businessman and you're basically just running a series of grifts and con jobs. You can always find another mark. If somebody's too clever to fall for one of his stupid building schemes, he can just find somebody else. But now that he's president, he can't – if Germany and China and Russia all start saying, well, we realize you're a con man. We're just not going to listen to you. He can't go find another country that occupies that role. Right. It's like, you know, as a freshman, when you first learn about the prisoner's dilemma, it's like – it's a dilemma and you're deeply – 
confused. It's like, is everything I thought about morality a lie? You know, and then you at some point <laughs> learn that, well, in reality, you interact with people who are there the next day <laughs> and, and the day after that. And if you treat them like the the you know the other side in a one shot prisoner's dilemma, then the th sorts of things that have that are happening to Trump now you know will happen to you. Where the Germans are like, yeah, we are not going to do anything that relies on anything that you say because we can't rely on you, and so we're going to make other plans. Yeah. Well, um, that's, well, that's why I might took a game theory class freshman year of college, and. Um, you know, that was, it was nice that I had heard of the prisoner's dilemma, but, and, and was basically familiar with the idea, but it was nice to take a class that early on in my education that um, really delved not just into that, but all of the other, the repeated strategies, right. um, things like that, because that's how life really functions is you have to interact with these people over and over again. And I had also seen these things in my um, hobbies, because this is one of the wonderful things about playing so many board games and tabletop magic the gathering type games with lots and lots of people is that you know even within a game a single iter a single game that you are playing these decisions crop up multiple times and if you are not fair to your word because hey i won't attack you if you do x y and z and then you attack them well you know they're not going to trust you next time but it also carries over into the next game you can't go okay i'm going to be untrustworthy today then i'm going to be trustworthy again tomorrow it doesn't really work that way um, do you pull off a con once and they're going to remember it every time? Right. Reputation matters. Credibility it does matters. Yeah. And on the international stage, you know, credibility is a, um, it's a very problematic word. Um, it's a, a word that I think has acquired partisan in some instances, at least everything has been so scrambled by Trump, um, that it's hard to make this argument. <laughs> Um, again, but, you know, I remember a time when looking at the news, looking at opinion pieces, it was basically conservative, you know, foreign policy hawks, essentially, who talked about American credibility mattering. And um, they're the people who uh, hit Obama over the head with the, uh, the red line comment in Syria. Uh, they said, you know, we have to back up our word. And they're generally referring to military force when they say that. That's part of the reason it's a problematic concept is that it's not, you know, somehow it's less significant when American credibility is um, on the line with something like the Iran deal, where, you know, right. you'd suggest, you'd think that American credibility was also you know, involved in that. But that's why, that's why the Trump factor has scrambled a lot of those lines. But um, in any case, I would say this is one of the things that you know, makes me a little bit to the right of where I would otherwise be based on other philosophical positions is I think that the credibility, you know, obviously matters in this context for the reasons that you described that people as individuals and as the members of governing institutions um, exist and they remember and they're watching the news and they're interacting with their counterparts and um, they can either see that there is a commitment to uh, backing up official statements with official actions or not. And, const and they're constantly readjusting. Now, um, the thing about a democracy with set, you know, with term limits is that those commitments change. And, you know, you mentioned like in a board game, you, if you say, oh, well, today I'm untrustworthy, but tomorrow I'll be trustworthy again, just, you know, come back tomorrow. Um, that's, yeah, you might have a problem with that, but, um, there's a more credible case to, to make that, um, you know, when Trump goes away, just, just as when Bush went away, the whole world, you know, drew a breath of relief and Obama, <laughs> Obama got the Nobel peace prize right. you know, before he did anything, just because the whole world was like, Oh my God, America's you know, showing its other face now. Hey, when they gave know. him the prize, they specifically said it was for stuff he had already done. Just by being him and not being Bush, he had already changed the tenor of the world. Already changed the world, yeah. It's, which is, it's kind of unfortunate that that is a thing that occasionally, you know, Obama gets mocked for. When Obama was, you could tell how how sheepish, sheepish, sheepish he was about how he's like, look, I know I don't deserve this. 
but yeah, yeah no, no I, his yeah. his speech was awesome his speech was great you know he goes and he's like yeah i'm an american president and i'm going to use the military to achieve american national interests yeah like just so you, just so you know yeah this is going to ha- and it did that's that's how he had to do things but it's What's interesting on the issue of credibility and Trump coming in and this this change we always get, it's interesting because, um, you know, you look at the polling and um, certainly in our politically aware lifetimes, um, when George W. Clinton was pretty popular around the world and then George W. Bush wins and everybody around the world is like, oh, God, don't elect that guy. And they elect that guy. And then he's tremendously unpopular. And I remember um, some French... Uh, newspaper after I think it was the 20, 2004 election just had a headline where it was like the number of votes he got. How can this number of people be so dumb? Right. And you know, a, a, right. a, a Republican presidents are never popular around the world. They may be popular in specific countries. For right. example, Trump was favored over Hillary Clinton and Obama in Russia. Uh, big surprise there. <laughs> um, and I think possibly also Poland and Israel, but um, <laughs> but uh, but in general, Republican presidents just are not popular with the rest of the world. And Democratic ones tend to be because, well, Republican presidents tend to do things like Bush and Trump have done. Um, where they, you know, because we talk now, we, we look back to the halcyon days of George W. Bush as an adult who at least tried to not destroy the world order. But he was also the one whose administration was, was referring to old Europe. Um, and how, you know, we didn't need all, we've passed the guard from France and Germany. We don't need them anymore. Um, they were doing a lot of the, um, petulant stuff that, that Trump is doing at least early on, um, to a, to a lesser degree, but they were doing it. They were saying those things. That's why the world didn't like them. Well, and this is also why Trump was able to take over the body of the Republican party, like the kind of brain-eating worm that he is you know that um the the sick you know if the if the if the host body had been fully healthy the infection would not have taken hold absolutely um and so those types of uh i mean that kind of radical distrust of the um of this rules-based international liberal order but that is itself a somewhat problematic uh, category um you know you can argue about whether that order exists but to the extent that it exists or to the extent that there are countries that are trying to implement it um you know the the mistrust of that existed within the republican party before and that's part of what um that was the path that trump took to his victory in the in the primaries, yeah. but but it's always been that interesting tension between um, people on the right who disdain international institutions like the United Nations, like pretty much anything that isn't military based, but they've used to at least uh, say nicer things about NATO, and right. uh, not uniformly though. I mean, my old the old Europe comment involved a bunch of NATO allies. Um, and the Bush administration's view that, okay, well, we don't need these other NATO allies when we go into Iraq. Um, you know, that, that was a factor back then. But generally speaking, the Republicans tended to treat institutions like NATO much more seriously because of its role in helping us win the Cold War. And now Trump comes in and he's gotten rid of even that last shred of appreciating international alliances, which is not good it is in fact quite damaging yeah. and when it comes to credibility um, we have this seesawing between okay democratic president is coming in the world breathes a sigh of relief uh now they'll be willing to work with us again after a period of a republican president that disdained a lot of our alliances i'm concerned that trump trump has not only been very different in terms of scale uh of of disdaining international obligations but uh, he seems to have made uh, a lot of our allies wake up to the fact that if it could happen once with Trump, how do they know it won't happen again later? And uh, there's a tendency for a lot of us to cross our fingers and say, well, maybe Trump is sui generis. And uh, after he's gone, 
we'll just it'll just be an aberration in history. We can get rid of him after one term. We'll go back to normal. But part of the problem is he's already done so much damage in terms of our credibility that we may never go back to that. Because it used to be, okay, well, we alternate from a Democrat that they like to a Republican that they don't like. Uh, but at least the Republican will uphold the agreements that they had. Now, every election is an opportunity for us to throw away every agreement we've made. And even within one administration, the very idea that anyone in the Trump administration would expect North Korea to reach a useful nuclear deal with us right after we threw away a nuclear deal we had just made. That was, you know, that, that was this, a similar idea of easing sanctions in, in, uh, in exchange for halting a nuclear program. The very idea that that would somehow function when we just blew our own credibility away. I mean, I, I, I would say, what are they thinking in the administration? But I mean, they're not really thinking that much. Well, yeah, well you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I agree with this, like, I don't know, 80 percent. Um, because one, to the extent that the, you know, there, there, you know, these breathless, uh, articles quoting Angela Merkel saying, you know, we can no longer rely on the Americans. And it's like, you know, the, the way it's presented, it's just, can you believe it? They say they can't rely on us anymore. And I would say to the extent that the European Union steps up to the plate of defending their own interests and global interests by any number of steps from, um, for example, this shot across the bow to uh, big tech companies for scraping data of users, uh, you know, from that extreme, right? Like shaping the future global economy through, um, rules and regulations uh, for consumer protection purposes to um, energy security uh, to, you know, military and security relationships with, with countries that, you know, need the support of um, more developed professional militaries. These are good things, you know, and if, for example, Trump's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not the case that Trump's um, brinkmanship actually led any of our allies to increase their commitments to military spending, for example. But if it were the case that it were, which, you know, outside of this particular instance, things like Merkel saying we can no longer rely on the Americans suggest that it is, you know, if it is the case in other ways. It's not the case when it comes to military, you know, it's, when it comes to them. Uh, continuing to commit to gradually expanding their military spending, which they agreed to several years ago. Um, you know, those are good things. And so um, there are all sorts of ways in which I agree that Trump is tearing things apart that make the world worse. But I think the second order effects of some of those um, present countervailing positives. Right. And, well, you know, when it comes to the JC or yeah, you know, the Iran deal. I forget the acronym at the moment. JCPOA. Um, JCPOA. Yeah, I, I always forget if it's the P or the C that's, that's first. But, but anyway, thank you for making me wallow in that uh, mind fart for a minute. So, uh, you know, when it comes to that, um, you know, it's like, yes, it is bad. It is a bad thing <clears throat> the, to happen to the world that he tore that deal up. I, that is my opinion. Um, however, it's also the case that if, you know, if you're relying on agreements made with the executive branch and not a treaty with the full force of law as passed by the Senate, that's what you're going to get. I mean, that's the, like the system, that is the system that we have. And again, it's not good. It's not a good thing that he tore it up, but, um, you know, and it is in fact quite bad that um, the partisan games played by Republicans to take control of the Senate and, you know, or after they took control of the Senate to um, abuse the privileges of that uh, branch in these totally unprecedented ways. Exhibit A being the Merrill 
you know, stealing Merrick Garland's confirmation, uh, you know, uh, nomination to the Supreme Court. You know, these are bad things, but they're the way the system works. And, and specifically, we're talking about in international politics. That is, the, I mean, that's that is exactly the way the system is supposed to work. But you know, for things to actually have weight, they need to go through Congress. And um, so, so yeah, I have to push back a little bit. I mean, I mostly agree with you on the substance to say that these are these are bad moves, but um, you know, on the credibility of of the republic question i think to the extent that they are to the extent that other countries are saying like oh wow you know america can really change uh when the administration changes maybe we should take account for that in our own government policies um that strikes me as a no-brainer of course part of the issue is i mean a lot of that's predicated on the if this works then it wasn't quite as dumb Whereas if it doesn't work, then it's still pretty dumb. Um, no, I mean, like I said, I yeah. still think each specific thing is a bad thing. You know, each specific step that the Trump administration has taken, I mean, the vast majority of them are terrible. Um, but the second, you know, those are the four first order effects are all negative, but the second order effects could provide countervailing positives if, for example, the EU uh, can step up and provide those sorts of, uh, yeah, I, already, I, you know, I referred to some examples of, of areas in which they could, um, do good in the world instead of bad. And of course, you know, so I met the, I mentioned energy security and that's a, that's a big one that like the German, uh, this, uh, energy Nord Stream Venda. two, okay. I'm sorry. Energy Venda. I thought that's where you were trying to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Yeah. Minor, minor point here. Um, I don't, I don't recognize that word. I assume you're talking about the like ener energy way. Is that? Yeah, and it, well, when it's energy turn, turn, turn their energy huh. system. Yeah. Down. So, um, an interesting point that I think is uh, a fun little tidbit. Um, my understanding is the Germans never really referred to Blitzkrieg. In World War II, it was always the war of movement hmm. or what the contemporary American army would call maneuver warfare. Uh, and so the use of that term is um, potentially anachronistic and apparently definitely not historical because that's not the term that the German general staff actually used to describe what they were themselves doing. All right. Well, I believe Energy Venda is actually. What do we have if not segues? <laughs> that's that's the op That's like the opposite of a segue. It just kills all conversation. That's what. That's, it takes two to tango. It takes two to tons. Anyway. To tons. Um. Yes. So anyway, you were making a point about Germany's energy. The Nord, you're making a point about the Nord Stream. No, they're just, I, I listed three fields in which, um, you know, Europe as the sort of go-to counterpoint to Trumpian Republican uh, unilateralism. You know, three fields in which Europe can kind of, um, you know, that they have a choice in the matter and they can choose to devote more resources to establishing uh, global mechanisms that um, work against the sort of turbulence coming in the wake of these rapid changes in American policy. And um, in terms of energy, <clears throat> energy security, and um, you, you say, you know, sort of what does energy security mean, but at, at a minimum, you know, rewarding good actors and punishing bad actors, that, uh, you know, the Germans are from my understanding of the contemporary position of their, um, their policy, you know, they're kind of, um, what's the term? They're defecting. That's the term for the game strategy choice. Yeah, like they're, they're, defecting, you know, they're defecting from the, you know, from the sort of, uh, from the equilibrium strategy and pursuing a deal with Russia that would, you know, leave literally leave Eastern Europe in the cold. 
you know, that now there's one gas pipeline to go to Russia, uh, go between Russia and Germany. And as a result, it goes through uh, Eastern European countries that benefit. So if Russia wants to, to, to access German markets, they have to provide gas to these Eastern European countries that they could otherwise use gas uh, access as political leverage upon. And, um, you know, it sort of works for the Germans, but the Germans don't want to risk that, um, you know, risk the possibility that Russian uh, problems with those Eastern European countries would cut off their access to gas or that Russia was that would ever dare use um, that as leverage over Germany. So they want their own gas pipeline. And it's, you know, defecting from the from the mutual support that they would otherwise pro provide. Right. And of course, bear in mind that you know, one of the things Trump criticized Germany for was how much of its gas it gets from Russia. Right. And this is not, and this is one of these things where you have to kind of pull back from the reflexive desire to criticize Trump because it's not off base. It, it may be, um, you know, it may have been out of place, but it wasn't right. wrong. Like he said a true thing. Yeah. Which for him is a step up. <laughs> it's, is that a true thing? He didn't really understand the implications of, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was right. an accurate statement. And for him, that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yeah so but, um, that's all. Facilities. Yeah, well, well, actually, so on the, but on the note of energy independence, I mean, one of the yeah. things that I um, wish I understood better is that we sort of had this, I feel like we've gone through stages on renewable, sustainable energy, where we started well, some number of years back, we started investing in all of these clean energy programs and people got all excited and, oh, yeah, we're going to make these things going to be great. And then somewhere the narrative became that they had failed. Um, this didn't work, that they're all boondoggles, that um, we, we, you know, Germany's making all these solar cells, you don't get enough sun in Germany and things like that. And then I started to hear people saying, well, actually, now that a bunch of time has passed quietly, um, these policies have turned out to be very successful. And I really wish I had a better grasp on how some of that is going. But the fact that the mm -hmm. Trump administration now sees fit that, oh, well, now we have to start subsidizing these coal powered plants because right. now coal, which you know was the example of energy that doesn't need government help. Now, suddenly coal needs government help. Um, I really I I. We need right there, I mean, they're acknowledging that they lost, you know, precisely by that point. That if um, if they were correct in you know the horse that they picked to win the race, then they wouldn't need to subsidize that industry. Um, and yeah, like I don't know the specifics enough to talk really uh, to talk intelligently about this. That's our show. Not that, that stops show. me. Not that that ever stops me, but um, I agree with you that it'd be good to know more. I think um, the I think a lot of what you were referring to as you know people are out there saying you know like what is it what is it that Trump says all the time you know people always say or you know many people are saying many people are saying um, I think you're probably mostly picking up on um, you know, misinformation. I mean my understanding is that around the world, the general story is cost of installation going down, provision of power going up. And it, there, there's still the, the fundamental technical hurdle is storage right. of energy. That is what I so reliability of delivery. Um, but there are all sorts of ways to solve that problem. And in part, if you have, if you have massive oversupply of capacity uh, during the time that these renewable energy sources are available, so when the wind is blowing, when the sun is shining, you can do you can do interesting things like pumping water uphill. Um, there are these weird, like mega project concepts, like um, creating a huge hole in the earth and filling it with like water and a giant cement. Uh, cylinder that you then pump water under the cylinder that then as the cylinder then sinks it creates pressure and there's all sorts of weird ideas that um, you know if there's a will there's a way I mean beyond um, the currently insurmountable problem of um, you know the technical 
like I said, the technological solution of um, like the perfect battery, you know, battery technology as it improves could solve the problem of energy storage, but that's something that's like over the hill. Whereas um, these sorts of mega projects are possible. I mean, they're not necessarily, they're not silver bullets, but they're things that we could do with, with current technology. Um, but as with many things, the Republicans, the Republican approach to um, these questions that they, I'm trying, I'm trying to stop myself and be fair <laughs> again, but yeah, there's a remarkable, there's just so much bad faith where they say, you know, oh, this isn't what the market wants. And so we can't possibly interfere and pick winners and losers. But as you just referred to, yeah, they're picking winners and losers when it comes to subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. I mean, yeah, they just, they just, you know, yeah. We so find ourselves they, they don't want to pick winners and losers when the, when the actual winners of the future energy economy seem to be competitors to, you know, the industries that they rely on for political support. They already picked their winners and losers. They picked coal as a winner and solar as a loser. And they're just, they don't want anybody else to change that pick order, essentially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is. And what's, really, what's really bizarre is that, sorry to interrupt you, but I'm going to just grab the floor again. Um, you know, the, the, in this weird two step of the American political system, where because we have the two major parties, as they change over time, they occasionally, like, flip and do a 180 relative to the other. And, you know, you have the Republican party coming into existence as the party of free soil. And then they subsequently absorbed the old slave power electors, essentially, you know, a hundred years later, some somewhat similarly, you know, the Republican party was the party of, um, you know, they, they took the Whigs as well, right? The party of like internal improvements, canals and railroads and, um, and big business. And to some extent they still have that, but they also simultaneously took the rhetoric of like Andrew Jackson Democrats. And so they talk about, uh, don't tread on me, local rule, you know, Jeffersonian principles of kind of, localism smallness but when it comes to energy nothing could be localer you know smaller more distributed more jacksonian than solar power you know you're just talking about the sun is an entire astronomical unit away (laughs) yeah well right there is only one sun so maybe that's the problem that they have well there are many stars but yeah well i don't think you get much solar power off, off the stars it would be difficult but yeah Anyway, that's that's you know another patented David big thought, but it's just uh, it's just annoying that 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 yet another contradiction exists in the or you know, contradiction in this case being the um, the euphemistic way of saying hypocrisy. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, um, yeah. We were supposed to talk about we were supposed to talk about uh, Russia. We were and, talking about Russia, and we. We're simply transitioning in a perfectly logical way into uh, some of the well, concerns yeah. that appear, yes, with regards to Russia. Because you know what is the saying that they had about uh, Russia for you know ten or so years ago? They were saying it was Trust basically just a really large gas station. Oh right, exactly, a gas station with an army. With an like army, that. yeah. Much as our government is an insurance company with an army, <laughs> yeah. um, but. Yes. And so getting off of the stuff that Russia produces is something that, you know, has been a goal for a while. And so that's why it's it's it. Well, it's not mind boggling to me because one of the problems with a lot of these political discussions is that we a lot of times when you would say, I don't understand why you really, you know, OK, I actually do understand why. In the case of the right, when we say, well, I don't understand why they won't back these sustainable solutions for, you know, if you look at it. Energy independence with, with solar and wind and all of those things is such a brilliant solution to a lot of national security problems, helps with right. energy supply, um, makes people less dependent on places like 
Rush, like like who have been some of the most disruptive and uh, and um you know exporting trouble people of the last couple decades? You've got Russia, you've got the Middle East, uh, even Venezuela to a certain extent when it was functioning better, um, and we don't, they're getting their resources from the very things that an energy independence strategy would help make less relevant. Uh, but you, we don't talk about that as a national security issue when we're talking to these Republicans who claim they're so serious about national security. But part of that is because we knew they were kind of full of it all the, the whole time. You know, as soon as Trump gets in, suddenly all these important national security things like NATO, they just go out the window because they want, because that was never really what it was about. It was about the industries that they already preferred, like the coal people, because the coal people gave them the money. And even when they talk about, oh, we're going to get coal going again, well, and they'll talk about it in terms of coal jobs. But, oh, look, none of the stuff they've done to promote coal brings any of the jobs back. Because the reason those jobs left wasn't because of, um, you know, crazy left-wing environmental stuff. It was because the mining industry changed, and it changed in a way that required fewer employees. Right. And so we, we can we can look at all these the elements as to why a decision comes out the way that it does. And at that point, I mean, you don't really have any questions about it. There's no, really no need to say, I don't understand why they did that. We understand why they did that um, yeah. and why they're... Well, this is another topic that we could potentially get into of... Um the kind of performative naivete of a certain section of the American media that has to, or that thinks that they have to give uh, the benefit of the doubt to political actors in the way that you describe. Like, you know, why is it that they're doing this? Oh my goodness. How do we explain this thing that we're seeing? You know, why is it that the Republicans are acting this way? Yeah. You know, it's like, well, it's pretty obvious. Right. Pretty but, obvious. But why. then again, if Actually, you're I was, in... just, if I if I may, I was I was I bought a book of stories of the uh, Persianate Homer Simpson figure uh, Nasreddin okay. Hoja, as he's known in Turkey, and one of the one of the ones that I had not heard before, which I absolutely love, is that uh, the Hoja's neighbor comes to him to ask to borrow his mule and, or, you know, his donkey. And the, and, uh, the neighbor comes and knocks on the door and Hoja says, hello. And the neighbor says, uh, can I borrow your donkey and take him to the well to get water? And, and the Hoja says, you know, he's thinking to himself, gosh, all these people come and they they borrow the donkey. And it's just so annoying. And he says to the neighbor, Oh, I'm so sorry that someone already came and, and took the donkey. So you can't, uh, you know, he's not here. And as soon as he says this, the donkey brays loudly from the stable. And the neighbor says, uh, so what was that if the donkey isn't here? And Hoja looks the neighbor in the eye and he says, hey, pal, are you going to believe me or the donkey? Yeah. That's, they're, they're, one of the lines that uh, Paul Krugman loves to use is, I yeah, think it was exactly. from Duck Soup, one of those Marx Brothers movies, which is, who are you going to believe, me or your own lion eyes? Exactly. Um, and then another line that has become very popular uh, for me to see people tweet or met or cite a lot recently is the, the bit from 1984 about how the the party's final command was to ignore the evidence of your eyes and ears and to take their word as the only version of what happened and that is what we saw a lot of this past week where trump said oh well i didn't actually say that thing i said i said this other thing and then yeah. a lot of people fell right in line and said oh well that's that's rob portman who no i'm not sure anyone has has managed to fall as far below my expectations as Rob Portman in all of this. All the other people I knew were terrible. Rob Portman, I expected to be better than this. He was one of those, oh, well, he said he said he meant something else, so I guess I'll believe him. Like, right. I don't have any other choice. Um, which I am, I'm just so furious with him specifically. And when, when's he up? He he just got reelected in 2016. 2016. Yeah, so, so he has no excuse. He has no need. The I mean, Trump era will be over. Like, By the time he's yeah. running again, everybody will be claiming they were they never supported Trump and were just gone during that era. Right. It'll basically be presumably. I mean, right. There's all like I I still I still even as bad as things are going, I still think it is extremely likely that Trump. I mean, it's still extremely possible that Trump will be reelected. Well, incumbents tend to get reelected. Exactly. So he's got that exactly. major thing in, in his favor. The concern, though, is um, nobody really sees the economy improving from where it is right now, which is which is it's in a it's in a fine spot right now because he hasn't 
sabotaged it yet, but we're starting to hear all of these stories about, oh, his tariffs are affecting this industry and such and such yeah. is happening in this industry and things are starting to slow down. His approval rating has has had a ceiling of about 42% with the economy doing well and without us being in the middle of an immediate foreign crisis or war. Uh, you, you picture even just a few things going further south than that. And boy, I mean, the Electoral College hey, would have to really give him a hand up. Yeah, Charles, I would love to think that, you know, in 2018, I mean, this is the, the ideal scenario for me is 2018, there's a massive wave, you know, the Democrats retain or make significant gains in the seats that they have in the Senate, providing a springboard for a massive majority in 2020, keeping the hold of the House, new president, unified Democratic government, allowing them to clean up the mess of, you know, the previous four years and on and on and on. Uh, I would love for that to be the case. But I mean, partly, as you say, like, look, you know, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop when it comes to the economy. If the Democrats get the House, especially if they don't get the Senate, uh, Trump will then run against everyone. You know, he'll run against Democrats and Republicans in 2020. And, you know, everything at that stage is on, you know, the ball is in the Democrats' court. And who knows what's going to happen, you know? So there's uh, it's, it's there's a possibility that, you know, there will be a significant enough wave for the Republican, the Republic to be saved. Um, and, and indeed the Republican party to be saved. I mean, the only way to save it is to destroy it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, would, uh, I think recent history, as we've said at the very beginning of this, this series of shows, um, prognostication is not really what we plan to do here. Although I, I would just note that yeah, speak for yourself. I, I think I actually want to get on the record with, um, with predictions and ranges of predictions, because uh, I think it's, Kind of a game. It's you know, sort of a fun game, right? To well, I test mean, oneself. That's certainly yeah. That there's way. basically what what I'd have us prefer to do then, as you just said. Either we don't make predictions, or if we make predictions, we hold ourselves accountable for them. What we don't right. want to do is what the media does right now with all these pundits yeah. who, yeah, um, yeah who who make all these predictions are constant. The Bill Crystals of the world, where we're not really sure if they've ever been right about anything, um, <laughs> although they're pretty sure they're right about everything. Uh, I actually saw an amazing interview that Bill Crystal did with um, Rod Brownstein. He's a um, reporter for the Atlantic, and they he talked. To, he talks. He's an expert on American electoral politics, and um, Crystal was a great interviewer. Actually, uh, I, I, recommend, I recommend that to everybody. Right. Bill Crystal, is, yeah, Bill Crystal is not a dumb person. I follow him on Twitter. He has a lot of useful things to say. He just tends to be wrong. But I, I agree generally. I agree yeah. generally with what you were pointing But yeah. the point that I would push back on then as a historical matter is um, like running against Congress is a is a strategy that presidents have a tendency to do. Um, and when somebody's an incumbent president, they just have a lot of advantages. But if you look at 2006, Democrats get everything back and Bush was still held accountable for everything that went wrong in 2008. Likewise, um, a lot of... Um, you know, the, a lot of things that were going bad around 2016 were because Republicans controlled so much. And, um, you know, would Obama right. have been penalized for that or not? I mean, we don't know because he was. Well, no, but think about it this way. If Clinton had won and the Republicans had held the Senate um, and the House, then we would be in a nightmare scenario where, I mean, it would, it would, I mean, it's like in many ways it's much better that Clinton did not win, given Republican control of the Congress. Well, I will 100% you know, if, push back on that just because Trump was the person who won instead. Okay, I will 100% push back on that really? because if Clinton had been – just listen to what I'm saying. Because if Clinton had, had scraped through but Republicans controlled the House and Senate – the midterms would be a total bloodbath. All of these Democrats would lose. Um, you know, the Demo the possibility of Democrats retaking the Senate would be something that we'd be, you know, looking at the next six to eight years instead of, you know, two to four years. Um, the House, you know, the Republicans would, would keep controlling it. Clinton would not get anything done. It'd be a total disaster. And in 2020, you know, Ted Cruz would win. I mean, it'd be a nightmare. Like, 
if Clinton had won and her coattails had, you know, taken the House and, and were Senate, that's a totally different story. But um, I think, you know, the idea that things couldn't be worse than they are now is one of these comforting lies and luxuries that we tell ourselves because we're used to things being so unbelievably, unprecedentedly good. Hmm. I... And, and in part I say that because, you know, as bad as things are now, maybe they wouldn't be this bad for another two years, you know, or another four years. But under, you know, Ted, a two-term Ted Cruz, it would be worse. I just this is I feel like we almost have to do a whole podcast on that as a counterfactual because I think well, this is yeah. I can I this may be our biggest disagreement to date on the show. I completely disagree. No, um, it's just I mean I, I, my point is bad things now versus worse things later. Like yeah, obviously I don't know. I, good I don't things think... now and good things later would be better, but no, you no, know, no, that's no. not I, the choice that we had. I mean I I I I I, I, I mean I, I I take issue with you know, part of the premise, obviously, is that there's no guarantee that you get a two-term Ted Cruz if Clinton wins, even under the scenario you've described. But, um, I mean, just to push back on a few things, like, I think that understates the damage that is uniquely Trumpian that has been done to our society, to America's role in the world, that a Ted Cruz would not do. Um, yeah, I, I, I think you're underplaying the damage that the Republican Party was doing plenty well on without Trump. No, well, I mean, again, I repeat my earlier contention that the Republic, the sickness in the Republican party was there. You know, the gangrene had, I mean, we did a whole podcast about that. I think it was our third podcast. Our second podcast was all about um, how that had gone. I mean, I'm looking at this, a scenario you describe in which the Republicans control the house and the Senate and Hillary Clinton is president. I mean, they don't get to like, do we real? the Republicans had said that they were going to block all her Supreme court nominations just for the whole time. Right. Um, I'm a little skeptical. They would have quite gotten away with that. But if we assume for a, a moment that she, she winning election would actually get to make her appointments, there would be, um, you know, Ginsburg would retire during her term, get replaced by somebody. Um, Breyer possibly well, she might as well, she might even end up with as many as four, um, appointments in that four-year period solidifying a liberal majority for decades, which would have, among other things, um, a tendency to block... You know, I think the rulings on partisan gerrymandering and voter suppression cases would be very different in a way that would really harm the ways Republicans have maintained the majorities that they have. Because, I mean, The Economist, we talked about this last week. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, that, you know, we, we ran... Or two weeks ago, that we ran into this situation where... Um, you know, the Republicans keep controlling everything while they can't even win a plurality of votes. And The Economist just did their big cover story on that last week. Um, and a lot of the things that allow them to do that are things that a Supreme Court that would have a Hillary Clinton appointed majority would be able to change. Uh, but anyway, that's um, I mean, that's that's. Yeah, no, I, said, I, that's I don't, I don't disagree episode. with that. I don't disagree with that. But um, I think. The. You know, I, like, I don't disagree with that, and I don't disagree, for example, but, you know, in evaluating the general claim that I was making, the a big part of it is how much weight you put on the House, Senate, and presidency versus the Supreme Court. And obviously, yes, that that, that is the, the, the fundamental, you know, the, the biggest part of any counterargument would be, um, okay, you put, you know, you, David, put a lot of weight on the House and Senate and the presidency in uh, 2020, I put more weight on the Supreme Court, you know, 2016 onward. And yeah, I, I concede that point. I agree with that. Um, but I think well, you know, I just don't agree that with the Supreme Court also affects the House and Senate majorities. Yeah, no, I well, I, not the I, Senate I because you don't really that, gerrymander the Senate, but it comes yeah, pretty. I, I hear, I hear what you're saying, and I, I that is a that is a fair point. I just don't share the evaluation that you do. Interesting. I mean, as I said, we may have to do a whole podcast on this. This appears to be an area of deep and lasting disagreement. <laughs> we'll have to put on our boxing gloves next week and just yeah. 
pound into each other over that. Uh, yeah. Because well, I mean, the court the court is just an it's a weird, interesting thing because it's obviously to me, um, you know, as someone who kind of first. I don't know if this is literally true, but I probably first kind of came into awareness of the existence of the Supreme Court with Bush v. Gore. You know, like, like I, I was political, but not, I wasn't like reading the newspaper every day or anything until, you know, much later than what, 14. So, um, that was why, you know, I watched the news. I'd like to listen to the radio. I, I, you know, I had political opinions, but you know, I wasn't like, fully engaged with politics and government and, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, the only point I'm making without trying to cover my ass on that sort of embarrassing statement was that for millennials, you know, Bush v. Gore was a significant life moment, I would say. And, you know, I, I doubt that most political, most millennials who have any view of politics at all have any illusion that the Supreme Court is, or at least that they would be working under the assumption that the Supreme Court is inherently political and that this veneer of um, nonpartisan legal refinement uh, would be seen by most of the people in our generation as merely that, a veneer. Um, that being said, you know, it's possible that um, that, that won't, be the case for the rest of our lives. And there's this, obviously, you know, the Federalist, uh, Federalist Society? Yes. Right. The probably. Federalist Society? Federalist Society, as in like the Federalist yeah. Papers. No, as in the list of 25 candidates. Right, for... that was created by the Federalist Society, which is a, yes, it is the Federalist right. Society like the Federalist Papers. Yes. It's not like Federalist, like it's an organization that produces lists. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is how I will refer to it from now onward. The Federal List Society. <laughs> oh my God. We've been talking for too long, probably. Anyway, um, right. So those people obviously want it to be political and they want their candidates to, uh, you know, adhere to the litmus test without admitting to it. That's the whole point of that well, that's society. Because being political, you know, no, they want their people to be non-political because non-political means doing what they want. You see, that the words mean exactly what I mean them to mean when I say them, and it's your fault. Impenetrability, absolutely. Supreme Court article, you know, cases are occasionally impenetrable. I will, I will note. So we we are running out of time here. Um, so we've hit probably a good stopping point um, with a bunch of issues we just slogged back and forth on. Um, I will leave you then uh, with a – so my family – I just have to say, though, no, I, I – I, the whole – we were – the whole entire vision of what we were going to talk about that I had today was Russia as Persia relative to the Peloponnesian War and Thucydides with partisanship within our society being – Right. You've got you your know, Alcibiades who ends up siding with the other group of people, Yes. Exactly. I mean, all, there's so many incredible connections, and it would be another example of uh, a way in which the people who generally go back to the classics to talk about this sort of stuff, you know, are the conservative hawks. You know, those are the. I mean, those are the people we learned about um, these cities from Hansen, in the first place. Exactly right. Um, and so, yet more bewildering. And then also, however, De Tocqueville, you know, who talked about right. the future of the world being America and you know, Russia. America and Russia. So Napoleon said have, something. Similar. That would have been an interesting conversation. That would have been an interesting conversation. Maybe we'll have it in the future. Maybe next <laughs> time. Maybe next time um, you can actually talk about those things instead of not talking about them. I think a wonderful little blame this on you. experiment for me to do. Um, if I ever feel like going back and listening, I need what I need to do is set up my um, software to show me what you say and what I say as. Uh, you know, different, different tracks. tracks, because especially today, I was like, man, I need to see, I need to get a count on David interruptions of Charles <laughs> relative to Charles interruptions of David. Um, he's holding this mug was full of coffee. Oh, that's true. David has see David yeah, has right had now. food and coffee and I have not. So, yeah. um, but I, what I, okay, here's what I want to leave you with is our quick little sign off today. 
trivia question for you. Bearing in mind that, you know, with my uncle having been a congressman around this time and um, my family just in general being fairly political with stuff, what do you think, I will say, was the first time I remembered the Supreme Court appearing <laughs> in something? Um, it was a Clinton administration related thing. Oh. Oh, interesting. Yes. It was something uh, that managed to upset both the left and the right. The first time I remember the Supreme Court appearing in the news was when they struck down the line item veto. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I remember everybody being How unhappy about that. Yeah, that's... Yes, the nation took to the streets. We really did. They were... <laughs> I mean, people thought that was going to help them get rid of all this pork. Um, yeah. Yet another hot take that I'll, you know my bid to become, you know, the next self-important Andrew Sullivan figure. Uh, but go on. Pork. Yeah. And how, um, uh, pork gotta come back. Death of the Republic was outlawing earmarks that, that reform was totally misguided. It's the, again, you know, localism is good personalities are good the ideological sorting of the parties bad that's that's what i that's what i say all right well we'll let david end on his little soap what was the andrew sullivan thing is called the dish is that the dish the, the dish. dish yeah all right well that's what you've got today then all right well then faithful listeners we'll get back to you next week where we might discuss persia and russia um, among many other possible topics. So uh, until then, this is us signing off.